Our scripture this morning is very simple. It is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We began a series last Sunday on the Beatitudes, which is the opening section that, that introduces the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. So this is just one verse, and I'll read it right now very simply. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Part of our question is, what did Jesus mean when he said that, and what does that offer for you and me? Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for allowing us to gather here together in this place. There are some friends and faces that I haven't seen here in a long, long time this morning, and there are some who are very new as well. And we ask that you would continue to guide us as a church as we walk through uncharted times. We're living in a time when there are still concerns that, that folks have for a variety of reasons about health and about safety, and at the same time we are moving forward in trying to reclaim life and to re-enter. Some things are the same and some things have changed, and that's the way our world works. And so we ask that you would allow us to make the most of the things that have remained the same, and you would also equip us to deal with changes that continue to come and that continue to present us both new opportunities and new challenges in life. Lord, we thank you for these promises in the Beatitudes. We thank you that there are blessings that you do offer to your, your people. And even though these are unusual blessings that, that often come in ways that make people think hard or, or to, to think in ways that are new, we pray that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the truth that Jesus expresses and to how he wants us to draw nearer and nearer to him. Lord, I pray that you will watch over every person who is here today and that you will continue to guide us along the pathways that you have been directing us in. There are some who are here who are very new to faith and who are taking uh, those first early steps, and we pray that you will continue to encourage them. There are some here this morning who are asking questions and kicking the tires and trying to figure out if there are reasons to put their faith in you and to trust you, which is so hard sometimes when people have been burned. And there are many of us here who have been walking with you for a long time, and we ask that you will continue to increase our knowledge and our understanding and even more our experience of the living God. And that as we worship together and as we laugh together, as we read Scripture together and pour over its meaning, we ask that you would continue to transform our hearts and minds and make us more like Jesus. And we thank you that there are miracles that you still work in our hearts today and in our lives. And so, Lord, we invite your presence not only into this room, but into our very souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. The darker the night, the brighter the stars. The deeper the grief, the closer is God. These lines were written by Fyodor Dostoevsky in his novel Crime and Punishment. And when we look at them, two observations seem pertinent. The first line is an observation from the creation around us. Ambient light from a city can block out the brilliance of the stars. But when the skies are the darkest the stars always seem to shine more brightly. Dostoevsky's second line, though, is spiritually discerned. The deeper the grief, the closer is God. 
Not only has Dostoevsky experienced the closeness of God, but in order to write with such wisdom, he must have gone through a deep experience of personal grief. Perhaps Dostoevsky had been contemplating the meaning of Jesus' well-known phrase from Matthew 4, the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's what we're going to study this morning. So good morning. I'm glad you're with us here at North River Church. It's been a delight so far this morning to see uh, old friends who are here together uh, for the first time in a long time and also to welcome some who are new. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching online. We're glad that you are a part of our larger experience here at North River. We are one church wherever we meet, gathering together, seeking to understand Jesus together and then to follow him I'm glad that you have made this time a priority, and I want to thank you for doing that. I think you will be blessed for building this discipline into your lives. And as we expand this experience by continuing to uh, allow people from wherever they watch, sometimes in different uh, cities, sometimes in different states, we are together expanding how God is working through our church. Last Sunday, we began a new series called Unusually Blessed. I chose that title specifically because the blessings that are contained here in the Beatitudes are very unusual blessings. Who on their right mind would say, blessed are people who mourn? Who wants to mourn? Who wants to have to go through mourning in order to find a blessing from God? And yet there is a promise and there is a hope that is buried here for all of us. That's, that uh, statement of blessing is based on Jesus' opening statements here in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's today's uh, simple nugget of truth that I'm going to repeat over and over again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Part of our question is, what did Jesus mean? And in order to discern that, we need to break it down into some other simpler questions. The first question is, what kind of statement is this anyway? And I'd like to answer that in a number of different ways. First, you'll find that it is a paradox, The definition of a paradox is truth standing on its head to attract attention. I like that. And this definition has been attributed to Oscar Wilde and also to E.K. Chesterton, but it likely came from Richard Gallienne as far back as 1848. A paradox is a wonderful figure of speech. By design, a paradox appears to be contradictory, but upon further reflection, it reveals an underlying logic that causes it to make sense to us. Yet it does so in a rather memorable form. The Internet's quote investigator notes that once recognized, the truth may descend to a plain statement. In other words, once we have mastered the meaning of the statement, it doesn't seem so outrageous after all. Here are some examples of paradoxical truths that we come to accept. A statement by George George Bernard Shaw years ago Youth is wasted on the young. The older you are, the more that you understand that one. The younger you are, you're not so sure. Less is more. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. If you don't risk anything, you risk everything. The pen is mightier than the sword. The best way out is always through. The louder you are, the less they hear. Or my favorite, the only constant is change. All these are paradoxical statements that make you stop and think. They appear to contain uh, opposites, and yet the longer you think about them, the more and more they make sense. 
So it helps us to realize that Jesus was engaging in paradoxical thought in order to deliver a truth that only makes sense to us as we slow down and engage in deep reflection. And so here in this second of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It is paradoxical because Jesus combines two seemingly contrasting concepts, that of mourning and of comfort. At first, it seems like they don't belong together. They seem like opposites, which are designed to clash. Mourning is not a comforting experience in itself. So the payoff only comes as we look more closely at what Jesus meant. Not only is it a paradoxical statement, it is a deeply biblical statement. To see this, we need to go back into the Bible that Jesus used that we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament, or the Jewish scriptures, speak of different kinds of mourning. So the first is the most obvious kind. There is mourning over the loss or the death of a loved one. So in Genesis, we see Abraham mourning over the death of his beloved wife, Sarah. As part of his mourning, he insisted on paying 400 shekels of silver to purchase the cave of Machpelah in order to bury her there. Now think about it. Abraham, Abraham had been promised all of the land of Canaan, and yet he owned nothing. He lived in tents and moved around. So when his wife died, he wanted to purchase a permanent place. And the, the local resident said, Abraham, you're a great man. We'll give you this cave. You don't have to pay us for it. And he insisted on paying for that land. He didn't want to take anything that didn't belong to him prematurely. But he also wanted to have a place where he could come back and he could remember. And so Abraham paid those 400 shekels of silver to purchase that cave. Years later, when the, when the patriarch Joseph's father, Jacob, died in Egypt, where Joseph was the second highest ruler in the land, the embalming procedures took 40 days, and it says that all of Egypt mourned for 70 days. And then they brought his, his body and his bones back to that same cave of Machpelah. Joshua and the Israelites grieved the death of Moses for 30 days on the plains of Moab before they moved on at all. So that's the first kind of mourning. The Bible also talks about mourning over sin. This is what Solomon meant when he, he said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. So he is saying that there is something that goes on when, when we are in a place and we think about the fragility of life, the, the fleeting nature of life, and the brokenness of our world, that there's something to be gained in that, something more than the best party you've ever been to in your life. Think of the ministry of John the Baptist. His message was very simple. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people in that day, in the first century, began to acknowledge their sin, to turn away from it, and they were baptized in preparation for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And then there's a third kind of mourning that the Old Testament talks about. Sometimes there was mourning over the moral slide or the moral decay of a nation. So Ezekiel mourns as he sees the glory of the Lord departing the temple in a vision that he has. The entire book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's lament or mourning over the demise of Jerusalem. He depicts Jerusalem as a people who are naked and exposed to the world. He says, this is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. So we've seen that uh, this statement is sometimes a paradox. It's a deeply biblical statement. Here's a third answer to that question. What kind of statement is this? It is an announcement by Jesus. When Jesus preached his first sermon 
at his hometown in Nazareth, he opened the scroll of the scripture to Isaiah 61, and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning. One of the songs that we sang this morning echoed that last line that God takes away the, uh, the ashes, the sadness of the ashes, and gives us beauty instead. Remember that definition of paradox? Truth standing on its head in order to attract attention? This is what Jesus was drawing their attention to. The combination of mourning and comfort is part of the role of the Messiah. Jesus was speaking in messianic terms to people who were looking for the Messiah when he opened up the scroll to Isaiah 61 and began to read. It was one more way of announcing that in Jesus, God's chosen one had come. For all who mourn over Israel's demise, the Savior has come. For all who mourn over their own failures and sins, the Redeemer is here. For all who mourn over the brokenness of our world, the healing Messiah has come. Part of Jesus' highly prophesied role is to comfort those who mourn. Thus, this second beatitude is not just filler. It contains an essential announcement. Jesus is God's cure to the brokenness and despair that we encounter in this life. And his presence with us transforms even the darkest moments when we invite him into our lives. Fourth, this statement is a promise for the Christian. Last week we talked about the meaning of the word that is used for blessing in the New Testament. It's the Greek word makarios. And there's a range of interpretive words that can uh, apply to this word. It can mean happy, it can mean blessed, it can mean lucky, or fortunate. One writer suggested that we, if we were living in Australia, the meaning would be good on you to all who mourn. How does that sound to you? Good on you. We have something of a problem if we think, if we claim that this beatitude applies to all people. One Bible commentary suggests to say simply that those who mourn are happy would clearly be nonsense. So we have to struggle for that deeper meaning. We can easily see that there are some people who mourn great losses in life and who are never comforted. They always carry that loss with them. It hurts so much. So it is essential to see who Jesus was talking to. And if you remember, in the words that we read last week, Jesus took his disciples to a mountainside and began to teach them privately at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He referenced Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, with his words about mourning and comfort. We often don't realize that. It wasn't only in that first sermon in Nazareth, but when he begins to speak into verse 4 of, of Matthew 5 and saying, blessed are those who mourn, he is echoing the language of that great announcement. This reveals that Jesus made this promise about being comforted to kingdom people. He is pointing out a huge advantage in life that is extended to Christ followers. 
those who trust in Jesus Christ as God's Son and as the Redeemer sent by God will be comforted even though they may mourn from time to time. Those who mourn over loss and sin and brokenness in this life, yet who trust in Jesus, will find the comfort of God in the process of following His way even though the difficulty may remain for a long time. This is the life of blessedness. It doesn't mean that we never experience loss, that we never experience brokenness, that we never deal with long periods of great sadness in life. Experiencing great loss, yet leaning on the strength of God that he provides in Jesus. It is there that we find comfort. Fifth, this is an invitation for the seeker. While the promise may belong, first of all, to the believer, it draws the seeker closer, finding how God meets us in life when we trust him. So while the promise to that person who believes and trusts in Jesus, like all of the gospel, is something that we, we come to trust in, the more we have faith, this offer hangs out there for every seeker of God's truth. The good news always encourages those who always believe, and it calls out to those who are seeking for reasons to put their faith and their trust in the Lord. There is no greater comfort than the comfort of the Lord himself. It belongs to all who repent of their sins and who trust in the saving grace of God. It is bestowed on all who place their trust in Jesus as the one who redeems our lives and gives them back to us more whole than ever before. And as the Redeemer, he purchases the freedom of people who are caught in the brokenness and in the rebellion of a world that serves immediate gratification and self as God's. The God who redeems is gentle. He will not snuff out a broken reed, the Old Testament says. He loves you long before you ever come to love him. So let me say to you, if you consider yourself a seeker or if you've been sitting on the fence about making that decision to trust Jesus, if you would like an opportunity to openly declare that you are switching your faith and trust from yourself to be religious enough or to figure it all out, to the Jesus whom God has sent. I'm going to give you that opportunity in just a moment. But I want to answer a second question first. How does God comfort? Here is Jesus telling us that those who mourn will be comforted. How does God do it? Let me provide to you at least four sources of comfort. First, he sends Jesus. And so verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He comes with comforting words and a comforting presence. Jesus announces the blessing of God for those who mourn. At times we mourn over our own broken, sinful estate. At times we mourn over the brokenness of our land, over our nation, or the corruption that exists from time to time. Okay, it exists at all times, doesn't it? Doesn't change from regime to regime. At times we mourn because we have just experienced profound loss of a child or a parent or a grandparent or a neighbor or a coworker or somebody who matters so deeply, and it's hard to just move on quietly. So blessed and happy are those who mourn, yet trust in Jesus. This world is broken and full of death and disease now, but by faith we are citizens of heaven who are bound for a better world. Good on you if we mourn for those we have lost as we wait for Jesus to return. 
Good on you if we fight for life in this world that is dying around us. Good on you if you long for a better home when this one lets you down. Good on you because Jesus has come and he's coming again for you. These are the hopes of a Christian. And God has sent Jesus first. Not only does he send Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit. So Jesus writes in John chapter 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The New Testament word for comforter can also be translated as advocate. Jesus is our first advocate who stands before us at the throne of God. And then Jesus sends a second advocate, the Holy Spirit, who is a comforter by nature, who is God's presence with you at all times when your faith is in Jesus. That New Testament word, you may remember, comes from a military analogy. The advocate was the soldier who would stand beside you in a two-man partnership, who was called alongside. So the, the Greek word is the word paraclete. It means to be called alongside another. In the Roman army, that paraclete was the partner who always covers your backside. That means that there are times when the Holy Spirit provides comfort by protecting you when you are not even aware that you are vulnerable and in danger. I am so glad that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Then there's a third way that God comforts, for God himself is the source of all comfort. I love the way that 2 Corinthians chapter 1 describes this. In verses 3 through 5, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we abundantly share in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Notice how the Apostle Paul describes God the Father here. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the first description. Second, he describes him as the Father of compassion. And the third way he describes him is as the God of all comfort. As you and I draw near to God, he comforts us, not just a little bit, but he excels at this. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort is the very one who draws near and who comforts you and me. Can it get any better than that? He comforts us in all of our troubles, it says. So sometimes, while you and I want to push times of trouble away, the hidden promise is that he draws nearer than ever in those moments of great distress in life. And I know there are days when you can't feel God. I know there are days you can't sense God because we have trained ourselves wrongly to only sense God in the days of blessing. But the Bible says that God draws nearer to us in those moments of great trial and hardship and distress. What an amazing promise that our God is that sensitive, that knowledgeable about your life and about your distress and your feelings and your sorrows that in those moments he draws near to you instantly. He doesn't even wait for you to ask. It's part of his role. It's part of his nature. It's part of his function. So blessed are you when you mourn in the midst of troubles because that is exactly where God meets us. Good on you when you mourn for the God of all comfort will meet you there.
Oh, the Christian has such an advantage in this life. Why would anyone want to go on through life without the God of all comfort? But notice what those verses also say. They tell us that he prepares Christians to comfort each other. So it says, he comforts us in all of our troubles so that, that's a purpose statement, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Do you see the brilliance of God's plan here? Sometimes God allows you and me to go through very dark times because he understands how he is going to come near to us in those moments. And in those moments, he is not only comforting us deep within at that place of need, he is preparing you to offer that same comfort that you have found to somebody else who is in your life and within your reach so that you can give away the very comfort that he gives to you. And as you give it away, he will resupply more. That's the brilliance of what he does. And he brings other Christians into that comforting work. So he sends Jesus. He sends the Holy Spirit. God himself is the source of all comfort. And believe it or not, as many mistakes as we make in life, we are increasingly equipped. This thing is fighting with me. We are increasingly equipped to comfort others as he draws near to us. Maybe we could then take one of those alternate meanings of the word makarios or blessed. Maybe it's meant to mean fortunate are you when you mourn, for you will be comforted. And when you are comforted by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, by God the Father, you are unusually blessed in such a way that you are equipped to give that comfort away to somebody else. Now let me stop for a moment and just say something. You may be going through one of those moments right now. And you're saying, I don't, know, I don't feel equipped in this moment to, to give that away to somebody else. I'm just holding on, and that's okay. That's okay. You're in process. And you need to know that the closer that you move toward God and the more that you invite him into your presence and you invite him even to take your sorrows and to be alive in them, he will do something transformative in you. And it may take a while to work all that out, but eventually the day will come when your healing begins to grow in such a way that you are equipped to give that away to somebody else and you can share how God met you in that time of sorrow. This is one of the great privileges and benefits that we have even in the midst of our sufferings in this life. Here's the big idea that I'm trying to get across. Jesus has the greatest comfort team for those who mourn and trust in him. This is team comfort. Jesus Christ, who sends the Holy Spirit, who learned at the, the feet of the Father, who himself is the God of all comfort, and then every other Christ follower who's gone through any kind of loss or suffering or hurt or hardship, who becomes equipped as we turn that back over to God. And then he brings somebody else into your pathway who you realize, oh, this is why he has allowed me now to go through this time because I know what this person feels like. I know some of what they're dealing with right now. And I can lead them to the same place where God met me. That is the advantage. So let me ask the third question. 
Would you like to place your faith in Jesus? Maybe you're one of those who've been just looking for a little bit more information or a little bit more of a reason to trust in Jesus. You find trust hard. How do you take those steps? Let me just point out three quick steps to you. The first step is to confess. John tells us in his little letter of 1 John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgives our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The first step is confess to God. I've messed up. I've sinned against you. I don't know how to clean myself up or perfect myself. God, forgive me. The second step is to believe in your heart. Romans 10.9 says that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, the Bible isn't doing some kind of strange biology here. The heart is not the organ that pumps blood. The heart is poetically referenced as the seat of your emotions where your, your mind and, and that emotional part of you gather. And so from the deepest part of who you are, if you believe in him and you trust in him, that's what God is looking for. That's the first part. The second part is you need to declare with your mouth. And when you declare what you believe in your heart, you make it known, and you speak the truth to yourself and to God, and those words confirm what you believe inside. That's the third step. The third step is to declare with your mouth. Now, we, we, around here, we've learned to call this a transfer of trust, that what actually happens is we get out of the business of saying, I can be good enough, I can be religious enough to save myself or to fix myself and bring myself to God. Instead, there's a slight shift, and you're transferring your trust to the Redeemer that God has sent, who's far better at saving people than you and I will ever be. And when you put your trust in Him, God takes you at a handshake deal. He takes your words, and He pronounces over you that you are forgiven forevermore, that He sees you as righteous in His sight, and He claims you as, your own, as His own child, adopting you into the family of God. So how do you do that? You need to say it to God. So I'm going to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me that should flash up behind me here. And if you're willing to, you can whisper it. You can say it out loud. If you're at home, right where you are in your bedroom or your living room or watching at your computer in your office, if you say words like this to God and you mean it in your heart, your life will change from this day forward. Let's do this now. Lord, I confess that I have sinned and I cannot save myself. But today I receive Jesus as my Savior by placing my trust in Him as the Savior and Redeemer you have sent to pay for my sins. Set me free to live a new life in your grace. Help me to grow in my faith and to follow you from this day forward. Amen. Now, if you prayed a prayer like that today or recently, you will soon need to take some next steps in order to continue to grow and mature in your faith. One of those is getting baptized as a believer. I have a young man who spoke to me this morning, and he said, are you going to do a baptism sometime soon? I want to get baptized. I, I have this need to do that. So we'll schedule one in the next few weeks. If you let me know, I'd like to include you in that. And you need to study the Bible. You need to get involved in, in some kind of a group of people that can help you understand. We call them small groups around here. There are a few that are still meeting through the summer. A whole bunch more will kick off again in September. But I'd love to have you become a part of that. And you need to begin to pray on a daily basis. 
talking to God, telling him about your day, asking for his help, asking for continued grace in your life. And you will find that he leads you to increasing understanding and grace and strength. Let me pray as we wrap this up for this morning. Father God, thank you for this marvelous statement that appears so short and simple and yet conveys so much to us. Thank you for sending Jesus to tell us that blessed are we when we mourn, for in those moments you draw near. And I pray that for all who are mourning here today over the suffering of a loved one who's still alive, over the loss of a loved one who has passed from this life, over some great momentous and catastrophic event in life, as we mourn, I pray that you will increase our trust in you and in your ways and in the process that we will find the comfort that you bring into our lives through Jesus, through the ministrations of your Holy Spirit, from you, God, the Father of all compassion, and from those around us who are learning to trust in you more. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here this morning. We're going to continue to march our way through these Beatitudes. I'm looking forward to coming weeks. Uh, Todd is going to take a week in August, and Christy's going to take a week in this series. And Derek Churchill, who's one of our founders of GuyWire, is going to take a week too. And together we're going to offer you what we are learning one by one about these Beatitudes. So we're in for a great summer together.